Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I hope you enjoy the following interview. And if you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's guest is Kenneth Olwig. The book is The Meanings of Landscape, Essays on Place, Space, Nature, and Justice, published by Routledge in 2019. Kenneth Olwig is an American-born landscape geographer specializing in the study of Scandinavian landscapes. He is a professor emeritus of landscape architecture planning and management at the Swedish University in, of course, Sweden. Hi, Kenneth. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, So let's start uh, for our audience. Can you tell um, my American audience a little bit more about yourself and your educational background? Well, I'll talk about also how I got interested in landscape because my educational background and my interest in landscape go together. I was born and raised on Staten Island, which is a borough of New York City. But most people think New York City, big buildings, Staten Island was a very rural place with farms. And even I even had a schoolmate who was a muskrat trapper. And we had uh, uh, quite a bit of forest and open fields. And Ian McFarg, McCarg wrote part of his famous book about designing with nature, actually about how to design uh, Staten Island. So it was a very interesting place from a a landscape point of view. But it was also a place with a very uh, strong sense of community. And the two went together. Uh, So uh, I got very interested in that connection between the Staten Islanders and their landscape. And then what happened was they built the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, and there was uh, some attempts by the by the mayor to make money off Staten Island. So they just sold a lot of the land and didn't really listen to McCarg. And so Staten Island was basically raped and the landscape uh, was really destroyed in a lot of ways. There was a lot of erosion and uh, uh, swamps were built, uh, drained and built on which shouldn't have been and so on and so on. And so my parents, who were very strongly identified with Staten Island, they moved to Cape Cod, uh, even though my father had spent his, devoted his life as a journalist to Staten Island. So this was one of my interests in, in uh, how I got into landscape. But another, which uh, is, uh, has been important, break, uh, interrupt me if, I, if you find a, a question, uh, was that my, uh, my grandfather, who came from the Wild West, uh, was originally Danish, and he, um, he uh, sailed from Denmark as a very young boy and uh, on sailboats and so on, and uh, jumped ship in New Orleans and rode the rails, as they say, to San Francisco, just in time to see the city burn down in the 1906 earthquake. He then became a prospector in the Sierra Nevados, uh, where he went with a mule and a pickaxe and his new wife, Swedish wife, out, out into the uh, mountains to prospect. And so he was a, a dream grandpa, and he was the only one I knew, the only one of my grandparents I'd ever met, because the others had died. And so... Uh, uh, he really gave me a real interest in the, in the landscape, but also he had left behind a diary about his um, 
his his travels and so on. And it was in Danish and no one could read it in the family. So I took a junior year abroad in Denmark in order to learn Danish and, and read the read the diary. But then I wound up meeting a, a Danish girl who I married and still live, still married to. And, uh, and after teaching for a while in uh, Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin, I wound up moving with her to Denmark, where we now live and where I've lived most of my adult life. So I'm Danish and American now. But anyway, this uh, also brought me a new way of thinking about landscape, was moving from the U.S. to Scandinavia. And and this is uh yeah, excuse me. So where did you go to school? So I went to school at the uni. Well, I went to Denmark, uh, where I learned Danish and so on on a, on a junior year abroad program from Scheimer College, which was in Illinois. And so uh, I didn't know what to do when I graduated a year later. And and someone called me up and said, you know, they're offering a, a master's and PhD in uh, Scandinavian studies at the University of Minnesota. You should apply. I said, oh, that's interesting. I'll do that. And so I applied and I got, a, I got a scholarship to study Scandinavian studies, which could also be called Nordic philology. It's a study of uh, language, literature, history, geography of, of Scandinavia. Yeah, anyway, so uh, I wound up studying this at the University of Minnesota and doing my master's in that. And then I uh, transferred to geography to study with a, a rather famous geographer named Yifu Tuan who was uh, very interested in the connection between the humanities and geography, but also in perception. So he like had a course on, on how on the dry lands of uh, New Mexico, where he showed how New Mexican landscape was very different. If you were a native American or a, or a, uh, a uh, Yankee, uh, uh, Yankee, uh, pro- a Yankee uh, farmer or something like that, moving in and trying to make uh, uh irrigated land and so on. So instead of living with the land as it was, they were irrigating it. And then and the uh, Mexicans, uh, the Spanish, had a very different perception too. For them, it was a place for grazing animals. So there was actually three different landscapes depending on how you, you perceived it. And this became sort of uh, my major interest in, in landscape was how differently different people uh, peoples think about the landscape. And I would think that the on Florida, for example, where you are, this is quite interesting because of the way the Seminoles kind of lived with the Everglades and so on, whereas the uh, settlers who came from uh, the north, uh, they have been changing the landscape drastically and draining it and so on, and this is probably behind some of the problems they have now. So this was this was how I got involved uh, in this. Yeah. And where are you teaching? Where were you teaching at? Well, well, the thing was that I was te- I taught at Wisconsin for a year, University of Wisconsin in geography. But the thing was that that Tuan and uh, his approach to landscape, his perception, also kind of made a connection to landscape architecture because landscape architecture is also about how people you can change perceive people's perception of the landscape. You can also change the landscape and so on. So a lot of landscape architects were there. So anyway, I was doing geography, but I was also interested in. in in landscape architecture, and then I, when I moved to Scandinavia, I, I, uh, I've been working at universities in Denmark, uh, Sweden, and Norway, and I've been a professor in both Sweden and Norway. So I've been at uh, in Sweden. Uh, I was in Stockholm first, and then uh, in 
near Malmö in southern Sweden, and in Norway it was in Trondheim, where I've been teaching at the universities. So that's uh, where I've been teaching. And, and my least, my last uh, position is in is in landscape architecture, landscape planning at the in Sweden. And uh, oh, that sounds fascinating. It sounds like a bit of Gulliver's travels around the world. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, <laughs> except without the little people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, when I, I was sort of always thought of landscape the way I think most people think of it in America is as some form of scenery or something you can design. It's both basically a visual thing to be designed, uh, scenic you know, like a park or something. Uh, but in, but I discovered when teaching in Sweden that the Swedes used the word landscape, both in that modern American or English sense, but they also had an older sense of a landscape as a place. So uh, Scania, where I was, where I'm teaching now is, a, is a, called a landscape or Värmland is a landscape, but Öland, an island landscape, is, it's called a landscape because they were historically communities sort of, like uh, Cape Cod, where my parents moved, they they have these townships, uh, which are they might call them a landscape in in Scandinavia, so or in Sweden. So this got me to thinking: what was the, what did really landscape mean? And I discovered that it has several meanings, which is why I called it the meanings of landscape. And it's about the connection between this idea of landscape as a community, as a place, and landscape as a kind of scenery, visual scenery. And um, yeah, your book—it's—it's—it is. It's autobiographical. It's about place and and uh, how people, different people's uh, native versus you know now. It's almost like we live like on top of the landscape and not. Um, it seems like you're saying like within the landscape, like you know, we're talking about like you know Florida and you know uh, the European settlers that came in, and we had the, the Native Americans previously, and uh, how. They di- how differently they approach um, a landscape design. Um, is that what you found in your travels and in your studies? Because you see, you, you studied too, and you said in the um, Virgin Islands too. Well, my, my uh, wife is an anthropologist, so uh, she did her dissertation, her PhD, on uh, the island of St. John, and then she's done a lot of research on the other islands. And I, I went along with her and also did research on, on, the, on these islands and got to live on them, and I've written about them in various ways. So part of my education was living in the, in the uh, West Indian islands and also coming from an island myself, I was kind of interested in how islanders maybe think and do things a bit different from people from the continent. So that uh, was an important part of it. And, uh, okay, I, I, that was true. That was uh, that was one question. I was gonna, how do you think? Do islanders view it differently? Is it insular? Is it not? What What is it about islands that is it different? Well, my 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 basic point is that um, that continentals. Uh, well, I should explain that on Saint John, uh, the people who came from off island to live there, uh, usually uh, white people, but not necessarily, were called continentals. And the islanders were islanders, of course. And and uh, I uh, had the experience in a, a remote corner of the island where a little boy asked me, what, what island do you come from? Assuming that anybody would come from an island. And I said, Staten Island. And he kind of looked at me blankly. And I said, well, it's north of Puerto Rico. And then he sort of knew what I was talking about. 
But basically, I, my point is that he knew all about the connected spaces, uh, the connected waters of the West Indies. He knew about Totola and all these islands and how he could get to them. So he wasn't really insular. He wasn't really isolated by the water, but he was isolated in land terms. And, and I think that this is sort of the point that islanders are actually not insular because they're incredibly well connected by the water. But but the island also has a way of bringing people together uh, because, you know, uh, you meet people all the time, the same people. You meet them especially on ferry boats and so on. And so you, you, you gradually form a, a community. Uh, also because if you're a bit isolated from the land, you, you know, from the continent, you might need help, but like in this situation with the hurricanes. And you have to get together and help each other. So islands uh, create a sense of community, a strong sense of community, and people feel a sense of belonging to that community even when they sail off to some other place. So that's what's special about islanders. They're not really insular, but it's more like the continentals who come to the islands and who don't understand, who don't want to be part of the community, just want to look at the scenery and the swim in the water and so on. They, uh, they don't understand, you know, they feel isolated because they're not used to this. So they, they might, may get island fever or something, start drinking heavily or whatnot. But this I saw in the West Indies. But uh so the point there then is that the landscape of islands is very important as a community, not just as a as a scenery, and that that's why islanders islands are important. And historically, of course, uh, the uh, islands off the coast of America, or the uh, the islands of Greece, and so on, were incredibly important places uh, for civilization. So islands aren't necessarily what you would call insular. Insular. Well, that's true. I think uh, here in America, or, or I'm originally from Hawaii, and uh, we would call it mainlanders. Right. Um, and <laughs> it's a, a, it's, I saw that term, I was like, oh, he's, he's talking about a mainlander. Yeah. And uh, even though I'm here in Key Largo, it's like, oh, you know, that's the mainland, and this is, you know, this is the island. Right. Um, and uh, that's true. I didn't think about it, but a lot of them, they do come just for the scenery. And then um, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, one person uh, I know is like, oh, I would have island fever. We call it over here. And, and so and I kept talking to him. I said, well, how far do you really go in a day? And he was like, well, I, I wouldn't drive up to the big city of Destin, Florida, because that's 10 miles away. And this is there. I'm like, so basically you've self-created your own little island. Yeah. And uh, he's like, well, his own insular island, his own like little landscape where he only goes. And Mm. uh, that's as far as he goes. Um, But I thought that was kind of interesting. You talk about in your research and stuff that you were, um, the islanders tend to travel. Yeah. Well, like I remember we lived on Nevis, which is such a small island, you probably never even heard of it. But Nevis, uh, we were in a little village, lived in a village named Gingerland beautiful place as beautiful as the name and you would see a guy there with um you know his kind of his shoes falling apart and kind of holes in his shirt and he's hoeing the land and you look think this is a guy this is a really insular guy who's never been anywhere and then you go talk to him and it turns out he was a bus driver in london most of his life and retired back to nevis where he came from so he wasn't insular at all and the reason he was dressed that way is he didn't want to stick out he wanted to look like a normal normal guy so i mean it wasn't like he was poor or anything it was just the style that you don't want to look 
like you think you're too special or anything. So, or because you've been in London, for example. So, I mean, you you were always meeting people who had been all over the world, and if the Oland Islands are the same. You meet uh, which are between Finland and Sweden. Oland Islanders, you meet them all over the world. So, so they're not insular at all. But it's uh, people don't realize that. Maybe the continentals are actually more insular than people from islands. I think so. I mean, if you're out in a Iowa cornfield, you're pretty far away in a lot of ways from from good connections. Oh. Sea is a, has always been a cheaper and easier way to travel. That's true, and um, and the meaning that they that they put. I guess you know. I, I won't go into. There's a lot of things to talk about in this book, but. Um, uh, in the Islander landscape, you're really, you like this hurricane that's, uh, while we're broadcasting, there's a, or recording this, there's a hurricane that's going through the Bahamas right now and how you have to really be more in tune with nature yeah. um, and uh, pl- plan your design for nature. Because if not, you're, you're in trouble. Well, I, I think that um, an example of what I was, could show this is that these, these landscape places, these landscape polities that I talked about in Scandinavia or like the township of uh, on Cape Cod where my parents live, because they were such close-knit communities, they also were highly aware of the importance of this, of how the swamps and so on on the coast protected the, uh, the Cape Cod, which is nothing but a pile of sand, of course. So without those barriers to keep the water out, they would be washed away. And they are aware of the importance of preserving the water because on the seawater if it gets in, it'll destroy the groundwater, and so they they really do a good job of maintaining these things. And one of the things that was characteristic of these uh, historical uh, landscape polities was that they would uh, uh, they would like have uh, the village would have farmland, of course, but around the village you would have streams with meadows, and the streams would be allowed to meander, and by meandering they would create. Uh, meadowlands and swamps and meadowlands and so on, uh, which could be used to get hay and graze. And that hay would keep the animals going uh, in the winter, and then the animals will be out on the commons in the, in the summer. And, and this was the way they maintained things. But when you get a modern way of doing things like what's happened in Florida is you straighten out the streams so that they become channels. So instead of the sediment from the meandering creating uh, fertile uh, land, they, they just washed out to sea. You can see there's a huge problem uh, in, uh, in New Orleans with this happening. They've, they've kind of uh, drained a lot of the swamps and uh, the sediment gets, gets pushed out to sea and then it gets, creates a barrier and then creates flooding. And so they've had these huge disasters. But it's just not wanting to live with the land as it is, go with the flow as it was, but to try to straighten out everything and make it look, uh, make it look nice, maybe. But it uh, is not doesn't work in the long run. And uh, yeah, like they're uh, right now being uh, hit with that uh, eye of that hurricane, and when something like that comes through, you've got to. Uh, well, you know the uh, hot word right now is resilience. Do you think that in Scandinavia and European countries, do they, as the native people, it's like they they were more focused on they were already doing resilience planning, right? Yeah, they were. But of course, the Europe and, has some of the same problems as uh, Florida, say, or America. But there is the difference that uh, 
in America, private property is sort of about is really important, uh, and and uh, uh, I don't have any problem with private property, but it's in America you don't you can't touch it sort of so much, but in Europe there's a lot more planning to protect the the, the land, and then in Europe also there is this awareness of this other sense of landscape as place, so they have uh, the European Council. Uh, Council of Europe, as it's called, has created a, which is not the EU, it's a broader than the EU. They have created a, uh, the uh, European Landscape Convention, which uh, is not just about landscape as scenery, but landscape as a place of people. And it's trying to work to get uh, authorities to recognize the importance of people's perceptions of their own land. So that even though we have the, some of the same problems as the US, the people are working. To, to get the people's communities back into the, the landscape controlling it. So I think that, that Europe, that America has something to learn from Europe uh, in, this, in this respect. Not that we're perfect, though. Do they have a, a dip? Yeah. <laughs> we could all learn from each other. Yes. Uh, well, what is it that we can learn from, from Europe about their sense of place? Because um, it's your kind of transcontinental, you've crossed the, as we say, crossed the pond, yeah. back and forth um what sense of place do they have I, I have been to europe it's it's really beautiful what do they have that we could learn from from that well as, as i say there are some of the same issues in both places but uh, i think europe the americans tend to think of nature as wilderness uh and and you might think of say the everglades as a kind of wilderness but of course to the seminole indians it wasn't wilderness at all and in fact, most of America that has been made wilderness national parks was actually the home place of Native Americans where they had uh, where they lived, and uh, so it's not it wasn't wilderness at all for them. And I think that once you recognize that that the land is not just that nature is not just wilderness, but it's also uh, an environment which has been shaped by people over millennia. And that uh, people don't necessarily destroy the land; they can also uh, create a more sustainable land. Uh, then, then you can uh, then you get much better landscape planning and landscape design. I, th- I think a really good example of this is the burning of a the landscape. They, they, in the West, there are uh, burning, of course, happens naturally when there's lightning or whatever, but. Uh, also, Native Americans contributed to it by by uh, regularly burning, for example, the, the, the Yosemite landscape, and and uh, that sounds bad, you know, burning. But actually, what it is is when you when you burn the the un, the, the litter, the, that is the small bushes and litter on the bottom of a forest, then uh, the trees in those areas are can stand that. It doesn't hurt the trees. But if you don't do that regularly, then you get these monstrous uh, forest fires because the once the small stuff on the bottom gets really going, it gets the whole tree burning, the whole forest burning. And this is why one of the reasons why California has had such terrible fires is because they have uh, the Native Americans are gone and people and the old, also the Mexicans and so on who used to burn the landscape. Uh, I've stopped doing that, and and there, and then what you get is these huge conflagrations rather than small fires, and and even some of the trees in these areas, like the Douglas fir, they won't even germinate unless there's some fire uh, going on to get the pine cones to open. So, 
So uh, it's a you have to recognize that that people aren't necessarily destroying the landscape. They they're making it more in more uh, you know more stronger in a lot of ways, able to continue going on. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that uh, the native peoples also did some. I don't know. It's kind of like just um, maintenance, really. Yeah, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, keeping it keeping it hospitable, I guess, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you you are a landscape architect, and and uh, Olmsted, who was I really admire Olmsted in a lot of ways, but he was sort of the founder of uh, uh, Law Olmsted was sort of the founder of landscape architecture in America, and I grew up with his parks. But I mean, when he got to Yosemite, he was the first person to do a plan for Yosemite. When he got there, he said, "Oh, this is a beautiful park. It looks like parks I've seen in." in England. And, uh, and the first thing he wanted to do was to get rid of the Native Americans. But it was the Native Americans, by burning it over, that had created this grassy landscape that, uh, with the meandering river, which is what he liked. So you know, he just didn't understand that, that the Native Americans weren't just wild savages, but had actually been caring for this landscape. And that was what he liked about it. And so today, the, the Park Service has oh. to sneak out in the middle of the winter and burn places because the tourists don't like that. So they sneak out and do it like it was some kind of opera set or something like that and, and clear the land. Otherwise, the Yosemite would also burn up. So. Oh, I didn't realize that, that, uh, that the Indians had maintained the Yosemite area and created all, a lot of that landscape. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. At one point, one um, of the uh, so princesses, uh, one of the daughters of the tribal chieftains was brought back to Yosemite. And she looked around and she says, this looks awful. It's too bushy. And, you know, she, because she saw what was happening because they were thrown off the land and hadn't taken care of it. Yeah. Okay. You were saying. Oh, I, I, I didn't know that. No, go ahead. So, uh, and then you'll have to refresh my, my, mem- my historical his- landscapes memory. So, um, when he got there, what, what did Frederick Law Olmsted, what did he do for, uh, Yosemite? Well, he wrote a plan, a park plan for it, the first park plan for Yosemite. Uh, and, uh, he wanted to basically make it a park. Like he, you know, he also made like a central park. He wanted to make it a park, like, like central park. Uh, for people to go, and that was a very nice idea, a place to save it for the people to go to. But his idea for it didn't include uh, Native Americans, who he thought of as savages. So, uh, so that's what he he encouraged this the later use of Yosemite as a and the park movement, which in many ways is a wonderful movement. But the thing is that one of the things that you see in Europe is that the parks. American national parks often don't don't include people. They usually don't include people. But in uh, in Europe, it's very common for, like in England, for example, for the national parks to also include the people who live there and who have created that landscape. And the Americans say, "Well, this is these aren't really natural parks because they're not natural." You know, but it, the American national parks aren't natural either. Uh, when you, Yosemite being an example, but I could give you lots of examples of landscapes that were created well like um it's not just native americans the uh, hillbillies of the appalachians as they were called people looked down on the hillbillies they thought they were degenerate and, you know it's interbred and whatnot but the, they had created these beautiful landscapes in the uh, appalachians then they moved in and created a park 
And then they discovered it all got grown over with trees and you couldn't see anything and it was burning and whatnot. And uh, then they realized they had to do what the hillbillies had been doing all along, clear the land. So, I mean, in, the, in Europe, they are better at recognizing the importance of uh, people in maintaining the landscape, I would say. Oh, well, what do you mean about, um, for hillbillies? Now, my, actually, my parents are from uh, West Virginia, and you're okay. right, hillbillies are intelligent exactly yes they knew what they were doing they they yeah. they had to live on the land yeah. uh i know a lot of very smart ones yeah um what what uh, can you give an example um about uh, landscapes there that how how did they maintain the area what did they do for that in, in the in the appalachians are you talking about or yeah well mm-hmm. um in the appalachians uh it's interesting. It depends on where you are, but one of the things about interesting things about the Appalachians, and which is true many places in the world, is that people aren't just farmers or you know or something else. They combine uh, occupations. So in the Appalachians, it was possible, for example, to do rather small scale coal mining at the same time as you had a little farm, or you might make some. Uh, uh, moonshine and out in the woods someplace and but have a farm at the same time and so uh it was a kind of what you call subsistence agriculture they weren't really out to make a huge amount of uh, crops but they wanted to have enough to live on and enough to sell some of it and enough to survive if they were doing for example coal mining or something and this is true all over uh, in, in britain for example a lot of the most beautiful national parks uh, are farmed, but the farmers weren't necessarily full-time farmers. They were also mining or doing other things. And so it, because it wasn't uh, you know, their only occupation, they didn't use the land so hard as it is if, if you have to survive just farming. So that explains why the Appalachians was such an uh, interesting place. It combined a lot of different kinds of, uh, of occupations and 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 uh, also uh, because it wasn't plantation society or something, the uh, it wasn't like Mississippi or something where black people were slaves or whatnot. If they if they you talk about West Virginia, well, West Virginia is West Virginia and not East Virginia because West Virginia sided with the North and not the South. And the reason they sided with the North was that they weren't a plantation society, and a lot of black people and white people worked together in. West Virginia and places like that. And uh, that's why where you get rock and roll and all the rest, because black people were teaching white people how to play the guitar and vice versa. Banjo and banjo is a black instrument, for example. Now we all think of it as a, a white instrument. So they taught the white people to play the banjo. They taught the people to play guitar. And so the, a lot of the music that comes out of uh, what we think of as Nashville uh, and uh, places like that actually came out of the of the Appalachians and places like West Virginia. Well, this is interesting. So your, your meanings of landscape take on, just took on a whole nother level of, um, how, uh, our landscape influences our politics, influences our, um, economy and even music. Yeah, really not the least. And, and, uh, I mean, I know you, you mentioned uh, uh, that you, you thought that the um, idea of resonance in the landscape was interesting with the uh, uh, 
in the book, there's a quote by Tim Ingold about how the orchestra, Tim Ingold is a, is a ethnologist or an anthropologist, but he's also plays the cello. And uh, how in the orchestra, the, you have to have, you play your instrument, but you have to listen to everybody else and watch the conductor. And that creates a kind of resonance. And uh, you ask, you're wondering about how this would be in landscape design. And, and I think that, mm-hmm. uh, that that's the, important part about the community aspect of of uh, of resonance is that it's sound resonance is a sound concept where we tend to think of landscape as a visual thing sound is actually the key to resonance and and sound of course is also part of nature and part of the the landscape and very often today like i'm sure this is the case a lot of places in florida where you have a very horrible sound environment but people it's very beautiful to look at and so what they do is they put a windows in that keep the sound out so you can sit in your quiet apartment and look out at this beautiful landscape and not realize that it's hell to be out there because you can't even hear your neighbor talk very clearly. So the idea about landscape should be to think about also the sound and the way you feel and uh, the way it feels. And, and this also has to do with the presence of nature as, uh, as part of that resonance. And I, I use in the book the example of the... Um, difference between the ancient greek landscape uh the ancient greek theater but also uh the even the shakespearean theater which was circular so that when you're in that theater and particularly the greek one the theater was made so that even though they were quite large sometimes the sound was perfect because also the circular design created that and so when you're sitting in these theaters you're seeing your neighbors and you're hearing the speakers and the music and all and the whole thing is like being in a, a kind of giant uh resonator of some sort of, uh, and, 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 uh, that encourages a huge amount of community feeling and, and the Greek, uh, theaters were also used for political debates and that kind of thing. So it's a way of doing things that involve sound. And, but what you get with the modern theater is that the, what you have is the scenery and you sit separate from it and not really part of it. And you just watch what's going on. But we should create landscapes where people are sort of part of it and are engaged with each other and doing things. Um. Oh, that's so just like you were saying at the very beginning, we were talking about how, you know, in Europe people are more engaged with their, their landscape and how here we've become, um, uh, I hate to go back. It's kind of interesting to go back to it, but kind of insular from it and not, yeah. uh, this like the wild is over there. Um, but yeah, that's true. I, uh, I did read about that cause um, I, I play flute and, um, I was amazed that, you know, these, you know, ancient peoples had figured out how to resonate a landscape so that you could hear uh, a play in the yeah. landscape, basically in, in an outdoor landscape of a theater. Right. right. Well, they were outdoors and they were, yeah, and they could still hear each other and hear the play and hear a flute for that matter. And of course, the flute is something that grow, initially grew in uh, the swamps and so on uh, that you cut and make into a musical instrument. So it comes from the landscape. The flute does. The the flute does, yeah. yeah. And uh, making making maybe um, meaning in the landscape uh, resonate with uh, with everything, kind of harmonize people. Um, and you're talking about you know like uh, environment, space, and place, and and injustice. Yeah, and and. Uh, you could say that the pastoral ideal, uh, which people think of as mostly sort of 
silly nowadays for Virgil. It was just that was Virgil, who the Roman author who lived about the time of Christ. He he uh, wrote these very famous pastorals, but it was very political, actually, if you know what he was writing about, and it had to do with harmony of people, but also playing the flute. It was uh, that went together that people. Uh, music was part of the kind of education people to make the landscape not just visual but also resonate you could say um so and also well, another question i have for you uh, we were talking about uh, as we emailed each other um the meanings of landscapes learned living in scandinavia what kind of meanings do they have in scandinavia that um that we're missing here in the us well, basically, it's just the heritage of a meaning of landscape where it's a place. The word landscape is like Vermland or Öland is a landscape because it's a place. And, and uh, Oland Islands are called the landscape of Oland Islands. So people had a, in the language, and this is true of French too, uh, uh, and, and Spanish and Italian and so on, that these, the words for landscape uh, indicate more uh, a place than they do a, a scenery. And so I think that this, difference in meaning uh, encourages people to think about landscape as, as something more than, than scenery, something more than visual. But I wouldn't paint a, too rosy a picture of Europe. We have our, our problems too. But uh, I think this is a major difference in the way people think about landscape. Uh, well, what are some issues in Europe that you see um, that, uh, that you guys are, are grappling with over there? Climate change, sea level rise, what? Well, um, well, I mean, uh, climate change is a big uh, issue in in Europe, uh, and not the least in in the Scandinavia where I live. Uh, uh, I I guess that. One of the things is that they've they've come a lot further than the U.S. has on this aspect. There's a lot more going on. Our government, our new, we have a new government that is planning to spend lots and lots of money to uh, deal with uh, CO2 and that sort of thing. So uh, there is this difference there, but um, we're, we we have that same problem. I think one of the, the problems today is that uh, the uh, idea of nature as wildernesses has gotten some appeal uh, in some sectors so that there are people who want to rewild the landscape and bring back wolves where wolves haven't lived for centuries and so on and and so we have these tensions uh the, the nazis for one thing were, were crazy about wolves and uh, rewilding and uh, this seems to be uh, a problem in europe that people get nostalgic about what life was like when the Vikings lived or something and uh, imagine that, uh, that uh, people were, are better off when they're wild than when they're too tame. So, so you get this kind of idealization of the wild Viking or the wild uh, Teutonic German or something like that. And then this, this is part of that kind of conservative, uh, what you might call it, na- nationalistic movement that you see all over the world right now is uh, is it this kind of rewilding of uh, people's imagination and going against the cultural landscape? So this is a tension in Europe, which you have also uh, in the United States and other places. I don't know if it made sense, but oh. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess 
it, yeah, it does. And then I guess we, like you said, we have to be careful of not painting it too much of a rosy picture of the golden, the golden days of old that, you know, they, they didn't, um, it wasn't always rosy. No. Uh, but also the, the Vikings and so on, the way they're pictured as, as these marauding, uh, wild people. It wasn't true either. They were, uh, I mean, like Dublin, for example, was founded by the Vikings and it was founded as a place to trade and, uh, so on. So it was, they were tradesmen. They were, they weren't really, uh, all that wild, but they, they're painted that way. Um, they, they kind of imagined that way. And, uh, the Icelanders have imagined that they were this pure Nordic people that had fled Norway because their freedom was threatened. Well, in fact, half of the Icelandic population probably is uh, of Celtic origin from from uh, Ireland and so on. And that's because if you're if you're if you think about islands, to get back to that as being insular, you think, well, Iceland's isolated way off in the in the sea. There, you know, that's, you look at a map and you think, my God, it's isolated. But in fact, it was in like a a, a major highway for ship traffic from uh, Norway down to Great Britain. And if, if you go to the, the Lake District, for example, on the, which has a very famous landscape uh, of, that Wordsworth wrote about the Lake District, that's on the northwest coast of England. But all the place names are Scandinavian. And uh, a lot of the terminology and a lot of the way people still raise sheep is the same as in Scandinavia. So, I mean, it was uh, one big highway of movement, and it wasn't a bunch of uh, isolated islands. And that's why so many people on Iceland are not Nordic, but uh, mixed with Celtic people that they met when they got to one end. So it's like back and forth. So it's a big, you imagine these places are isolated and pure and whatnot, but in fact, the Europeans have been moving around a lot, and we need to remember that. Brexit is trying to isolate Britain right now, and it's kind of stupid because, I mean, where Britain, <laughs> what is Britain? It's made up of people from Rome and from Anglo-Saxons and Britannies and Scots and whatnot. So that's the way Europe is. It's not one, it's not pure national peoples. And uh, of course, the same is well, true of the U.S. This yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's true, very true, and um, I think it's even more so uh, today. Yeah, just studying basic European history, it's like the Romans were there, the Italians were there. Yeah, you know, everybody seems to have conquered somebody else's place at some point in time. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, even today, oh well, it's been a while. Uh, last time I was in London, and um, it was so multicultural. I thought, gosh, I feel like I'm in New York City. Yeah, exactly, uh, and and and. Uh, yeah, and it's not just conquering. People have been moving in peaceful ways between different parts of Europe all the time. Uh, so, and that makes a big difference for the landscape. We brought ideas. So, like, uh, for example, everybody, they were arguing that there was a time when landscape of Britain or of England was seen to be the product of these Nordic people who or these uh, Anglo-Saxons who came there and did things in this kind of, white Anglo-Saxon way of doing things. But uh, it's also been shown that, in fact, uh, what you see, the landscape you see in England is largely the product of inspiration from Venice, where the landscape architects uh, in the Renaissance were teaching the British landscape architects to 
create these beautiful parks and things. And then these parks are actually inspired by Italy and not by Scandinavia or Germany. So, yeah, so these these imagined landscapes, but in fact, they're from all over the world. They're not purely British. Well, that's true, too. Yeah. There's no purity at all, is there? (laughs) No. Of fertility. Even for me. Yes. That's true. You're, you're, you're Scandinavian, you're European, and then uh, I've got an Irish, Scottish grandmothers. And yeah, yeah so yeah. there's just no really such thing as purity, is there? <laughs> that's that's absolutely true. And even in Scandinavia, that's true. There's no people are mixed from all over. And, uh, and, and that and means the, lands, the landscape, too, is a mixture. Yeah. Sorry. Landscape's a mixture. No, oh, yeah, and and, and history is not always about just wars. It's about yeah, a lot of peaceful movement too, and, and trade. Yeah, yeah, and peaceful trading, and, uh, and peaceful trading. Uh, well, I have a question for you. I'm going to yeah. throw you a little curveball. Um, do you have a, a favorite landscape that you really enjoy the feeling of the place? Hmm. One, and favorite. Why? <laughs> one favorite. One <laughs> favorite. I'll let you uh, try to pick one. <laughs> of favorites. Um, well, I mean, I, I I can't say there's one favorite, but I like, for example, the I have a home on the island of Syros, in a in a in a city called Ermopoli which was created in the 1830s by refugees from the Greek uh, civil war, well, the Greek war with Turkey. And so it's, it's a new city, but it's old by American standards. But Ermopoli has a lot of the characteristics of a classical Greek city with a a lovely town square and uh, an opera house. And, uh, and it's an Island of course, but, and what I like about the landscape there is that it's, well, for one thing, it isn't. It was created by immigrants, but it's still very Greek, and the uh, way it's been planned and so on, it uh, it brings you together. You wind up on the town square. People meet, mix and meet there, both uh, in an everyday way, just to go to get a cup of coffee or something, but also um, like at Easter, which is the big holiday in uh, in uh, Greece, they um, they have all these. People uh, walk with candles from the different churches and meet in the town square and uh, and uh, meet each other, and you get seen being there. And so it's, it, the, the landscape itself, as it has been created, uh, creates a sense of community, a sense of belonging. Uh, and because it's such a lovely, concentrated city, it hasn't really spread out. So you don't have these huge... And because it has only a port, you can't get there any other way. You don't have these huge suburbs. You don't have these huge commutes. Uh, people mostly live near the city and shop in the city. So uh, the natural part of this of the island is a huge area that's quite not untouched, but it's grazed and so on, but it's still quite natural, uh, is there too. So there's space for that sort of thing as well. So in a way, that's a, for me an ideal kind of landscape. Does that answer your question? Your curveball? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I always seem to find one. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, why uh, Why do some places, you know, uh, in landscapes just feel good and other places are just like, eh, I don't really like it so much. Is it just, uh, 
coming together maybe with with nature um and a wild or not the wild but i don't know some kind of resonance that places have and, and others just just don't a genus loci yeah of place yeah and and uh maybe and I think that what's happened on a lot of the other Greek islands is that, well, for one thing, just about everything is painted blue and white, which is the color of the flag. And uh, apparently they had, a like at the time of Mussolini, a similar kind of leader who wanted everything painted the color of the flag. And these places tend to be abandoned uh, in the winter. There's just mostly tourist traps, beautiful visual tourist traps, but not much else. So it this particular city is not like that at all. It uh, has its own culture. It has industry. It has, you know, that makes it, it's not, uh, what should I say? It has that, that, what you say, it has this kind of sticking together attraction to it that uh, other places often don't have, even though they've been painted up to make look beautiful. They don't seem real somehow. I think that um, in American schools that uh, in Atlantic architecture programs, it's it's changing. You know, they they talked more about you know make place making more and not yeah. just um, a scenic homestead park. Not that there's anything wrong with it; it's it's beautiful no. and and you need that. But uh, more about uh, making places that people want to gather. It sounds like that's kind of what your essays are all yeah. about. Yeah. But I think Olmsted really succeeded, like with uh, with his parks. They really uh, Central Park is really central to New York City. It really is, and and a lot of the other ones. So, but uh, you're right. I think that that. But one of the reasons Atlantic architects talk about placemaking is that Yifu Tuan wrote a book called Place and Space, uh, and, and it's kind of started that movement. Uh, so that. That's one of the reasons I'm interested in, in place, but it's also his influence. His influence. Um, well, Kenneth, I'd like to thank you for, for being here today. I know we've taken up a lot of your time, and uh, it's, it's been a nice transcontinental um, interview. Um, and uh, can you tell our audience, uh, what are you working on now? What project? What fun projects are you doing? Well, I've got a, a bunch of projects, but one of the things is this particular book is uh, largely about landscape and space and uh, planning issues and that sort of thing, uh, and and uh, justice. That, but I'd I'd like to do another book similar to this one, which would be focused more on environmental issues, but also I think the contradiction between the global. I th- I would like to say I'd like to write a book called "The Earth Is Not a Globe," because it isn't. A globe is a, a, a geometrical Euclidean geometrical uh, ideal figure that doesn't exist in nature, and the Earth isn't obviously not a globe. It's not perfectly round. It doesn't have uh, lines of latitude and longitude and so on. But we tend to think of the Earth as a globe, and we've done this for centuries. In a way, the Earth is a globe should be a globe, but is has been pulled out of shape and isn't quite what it should be. And and I think a good example of this is uh, what will happen as soon as this hurricane, if this hurricane hits Florida, what you will see a few days later is there'll be a big debate. 
Some people say, well, it's global warming that's responsible for the hurricane. And other people will say, well, it's not global warming. And I, I actually believe in climate change. I think it's a real problem and I think humans are involved. But but this the whole debate about whether it's global, whether it's global warming or not, distracts from what the real problem is many times. The global warming may be behind it, but the real problem is that in many, many places, the planning, planning has been ignored. Uh, the people have built where they should not build. They have uh, drained swamps that should not be drained. When Houston was hit by some flooding, the people had built houses where the plans all said you shouldn't build houses because it's going to get flooded. And then it got flooded. Uh, so, very, And these are things that landscape architects and planners and all can relate to. We can, we can actually do something about this if we want to. Uh, it's it's easy to understand, really. Whereas whether or not the there's global warming or not is is a very abstract issue. We we might believe the scientists, or we might not, but it's not something most of us can really uh, do something about or really engage in because we don't really understand what's going on. I mean, we can stop eating meat, or we can sail uh, use sailboats instead of uh, airplanes, or you know the things people have been told to do, but. It sort of doesn't seem like you're doing very much just by not eating meat or not flying. Uh, but we can do a lot to uh, plan a better um, environment that, that will actually stabilize things and which will uh, discourage uh, the, the kind of behavior that leads to CO2, excess CO2 usage and everything. People won't need to travel so much. So that's sort of what I'd like to that's do in the next book. Yeah. Sorry. Oh yeah. Well, I think you. Yeah. You. No. No. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. You. You touch on that in this book too. Yeah. About. Uh, yeah. Just no matter what, living with nature is, um, and reading your landscape and place um, uh, is is really is doing your part. That's a really good way to do your part. Yeah. And it, and, uh, and 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 live with the mangroves instead of. Yeah. Clearing them. Yeah. Because everything has an ecological function and consequence. Especially mangroves. But they're they're not t terribly scenic, and they sometimes smell. So, you know, it's not the sort of thing <laughs> people want in their backyard necessarily. And they're, but they're so important to fish and uh, everything, because it's where the small fish are born and survive their first time and so on so it's yeah we and a lot of people like the seminole indians or native americans were able to have been able to survive in these kinds of environments so we should learn a lot more about how to go how to understand other ways of relating to them with them rather than just clearing them and making them clean and neat to look at so how we so your book can give us some 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 food for thought for how to um how to maybe not you know paint a rosy picture of going back to the olden days but how we can learn from that and uh go forward yeah but also just to uh, avoid getting stuck in these dis endless discussions of whether something is global or whatnot and then talk about what in fact is going on in these places uh places where uh -huh things that are going on that landscape architects, landscape planners, and so on, we can actually do something. Uh, not just stop uh -huh. eating red meat, but actually make sure that we get better planning so that our 
so that we're not as threatened by uh, the things that we do. Well, that's true. I mean, we're always going to have hurricanes here. It really doesn't mm. make any difference. Yeah. And the hurricanes they're, have been coming here for a long time. <laughs> and and the thing is that they you get bad ones and then they're not so bad and then you get bad one again. So it, it so that they go up and it goes up and down, which people forget. Uh, so you need to always plan for the the worst kind of uh, scenario. And if you do that, uh, you if you do a plan well, you can also create environments where people don't need to travel so much, don't need to drive so much, don't need uh, these things. In Copenhagen, we all bike. We all bike to work, or at least a huge number of people do. It makes a difference. Well, let me ask you. Uh, okay, I'm going to keep going here. So you bike to work, but what what do you do? In, I've always wondered, what do you do in winter when it's too cold? Well... Well, cold, of course, is a relative thing. In Copenhagen, it doesn't get that cold, <laughs> so that uh, people uh, people do bike. But like I've also worked in, uh, with people up in the northern part of Scandinavia where it gets very cold. And you say, well, uh, what happened? Your question is a good question up there. What, what do they do when it gets so cold? They look forward to it. Why? Because actually on skis, you can get around better than you can just about any other way. And also the rivers freeze. And you can get around uh, on sleds and things on lakes and rivers very easily. So people who maybe in the summertime be more or less divided by the lake, they get together on the lake in the winter. So uh, snow is uh, an ice surge. It's, it's a relative thing. And up there, people see it. They look forward to it. It's, it's the best time of year. They can get to see each other and move around and and so on. So, yeah, you can learn a lot from the way people in an area use their landscape because it blows your mind that, that in fact that even an ice uh, icy lake can be a place of getting together you make a hole and you can fish and you can have a little fire and make some hot coffee which they like yeah so so that lake becomes land <laughs> yeah right exactly Land in the sense of uh, the land becomes, of people. Well, land is the, one of the big problems. Solid. Yeah. But I mean, the word land uh -huh. is one of the problems because land has two meanings. One is the like the Scotland, the land of the Scots. So the lake becomes the land of the people around the lake because that's where they get together. That's what brings them together. But we also have the word land means soil. And landscape tends to be thought of as soilscape or topography. But the word, uh, the words uh, for landscape also in uh, French and so on, uh, pays and so on, uh, paysage, uh, it doesn't refer to land. It refers to a kind of place, country, the character of a country. Paysage means a pays is a country area, area of country, or not an area of country. It's a country, you know, like um, yeah, like these areas I've talked about in Sweden. Uh, Bermland or whatever, that's a passage, a pai. So, so the point is that, that uh, uh, land, we're, we shouldn't think of land too much, in, too much in, in the narrow sense of soil, but rather as a, also what brings us together, which is what a lake does when it freezes. Oh, how funny. I never really thought about it that way. Yeah, the lake freezes over and People get together and 
you know, I, I, I guess uh, I'll interject here. You know, when it gets down to 70 here in Florida Keys, we're like, oh my gosh, it's freezing. We just, we put on parkas. We, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you would laugh at us. We, we put on parkas. I mean, it's scarves, boots. <laughs> Yeah, well, in Minnes- you think we were in Sweden? <laughs> in Minnesota, where I studied, if the temperature went, the midwinter went up to freezing, not down to freezing, but up to freezing, people would take down the top, their, their convert- the tops of their convertible cars and <laughs> drive around as if it was summer. <laughs> and and uh, this, it's like that on the Faroe Islands, too, or in Iceland, that they, when, it, when the temperature you know gets up to 40, they start acting as if it was summertime, wearing a you know, light shirts and things. So, yeah, it's a very relative thing. And of course, if you're from Hawaii and live in uh, in Florida, you're not going to know too much about snow uh, and ice. So, you're forgiven. <laughs> There's lots to learn everywhere around the world, isn't there? Yeah. Well, I remember I did. I had a. I was part of a project in California in Irvine, and. I remember uh, in the office there, the secretaries were watching a TV uh, pro, uh, news where they were showing us a snowstorm in, in New York. And they said, you know, we've never lived in a place where we actually had to live in the snow. Snow is something you go to to go skiing uh, and come home again. You don't actually live in it. I thought that was kind of funny. That This is getting back to Tuan's point is that, that the landscape is, there are land, different landscapes depending on your culture and your background mm. so we should be attuned and to that a, yeah we should be attuned to that and for uh, for for the people from california and florida we, we we go to the snow for the scenery and then we come back <laughs> yeah exactly and then you come back which is one way of thinking about it yeah. we come back to our own little islands <laughs> yes that we've made ourselves yeah. to isolate ourselves that we made ourselves to isolate ourselves oh my goodness um well again can thank you so much for being here today it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh for our listeners uh the book is the meanings of landscape essays on place space environment and justice by kenneth olwing published by routledge in 2019 thank you Olwig. so much Olwig. <laughs> oh Olwig. Yes. okay i would say it right Yes. Olwig. You got it. <laughs> I'll spell it for every- I'll spell it for everybody. O L W I G. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here.